I would rather see my little girls die now, still believing in God, than have them grow up under communism and one day die no longer. This is James Carey, back for The Left is Dead, here with um, a special guest for a bonus episode and a friend of mine, my friend Tyler, who also works with me at Geopolitics Alert. Um, he has uh, quite a bit to tell us, and we have an interesting discussion up ahead about some history behind Armenia, so I will go ahead and let Tyler introduce himself, and we'll take it from there. Yeah, my name is Tyler Aram Vostgerchian, fourth uh, generation descendant of uh, Armenian genocide survivors in the Metro Detroit uh, Dearborn area. Um, and I am a uh, union member and activist with uh, Unite Here, formerly uh, UAW. All right. So, I obviously, you know, we've known each other a long time. Um, I study turkey a lot and shit like that so these things these, these things um obviously we've had a lot of long discussions about all of this the regional type of mess that turkey creates and other things too as far as armenian history and the genocide and stuff like that we've had long conversations about a lot of this but i let's start out with some basic information why don't you tell us um you know give us a general uh, idea of who the Armenian people actually are, because I think that's unclear, especially with the confluence of all these different groups in the region where they live. Yeah, um, the geography of the region um, for Americans is, is really confusing. The word Middle East uh, really doesn't help that. It's kind of a nonsense word. Um, people are pushing towards uh, Southwest Asia as a more kind of accurate uh, description of the region. And I think that's, uh, that's a good way of picturing it. Um, you know, basically the Armenians are uh, in the Caucasus Mountains, which separate, you know, broadly Russia from Turkey. Uh, and those are countries that, you know, most people would be familiar could place on a map. And, um, you know, on, on the other side of Turkey is, uh, well, below and to the east would then be uh, what we would consider Arabia or Mesopotamia, and then we would have uh, Persia or Iran. So Armenia is kind of a crossroads of all those different countries right now, which are um, you know, very influential countries today and going back to the dawn of, of written history, frankly. So Armenia has always been kind of in the middle there, but you know, being in the mountains, Prior to modern technology, things like cars and jeeps, and you know, now that we have drones and jet planes, um, they were kind of inaccessible and had been able to maintain their independence to a more or less extent. So, I, let's start. I mean, where what region do they actually originate from? Are they like a sort of the same region as the Turks themselves out of like the Eastern steppe area? Or is there? Um, we have, uh, linguists have done a great job in um, kind of uh, retroactively recreating the Indo-European language and language family. And these are most of the languages of 
Europe and North Africa and uh, Southwest Asia and um, Central Asia. Uh, so these were people who originated from somewhere on the steppes. I mean, that was prehistoric, so we'll never really know for sure where they came from. Um, and uh, they had spread so far that, for example, one of the, the biggest language in Europe that isn't descended from them are the Basque, another type of mountain people. Um, every other language, even the Celts, people who were there, Celts, Bretons, people there who were there before the Romans, and were um, almost exterminated by the Romans, even they were Indo-European. So uh, this would happen quite a long time ago, but Armenians themselves are one of the earliest branches of this family trait. So um, that shows that while the language may have come from the steppes, like the vast majority of languages surviving today in Europe and North Africa, um, that they were one of the earliest branches. And um, we can see that uh, the culture has more or less been consistently settled in the area um, due to the archaeology. You know, things like pottery are showing consistent styles from um, as far as there is, um, you know, first recorded evidence of, you know, Neolithic civilization to um, the written historical record. Right. I mean, they were kind of, as far as I understand, they were around like pre-Persian era. It's, yeah, definitely. They're, yeah, they're recorded. And that's a time of like, almost like pre-civilization, like the Assyrians and stuff like that back in that. Day. Yeah, yeah. So we have um, a host of civilizations that frankly, we only know about due to archaeology and little bits and pieces in the Old Testament. And then starting with like Darius the Great, then we get the historical record. Uh, where we have more of a blow-by-blow blow of uh, how people perceive these things actually to have happened. Persia is a great place to kind of start thinking about this stuff because it was the first multi-continental uh, empire. Uh, absolutely huge. I mean, stretching from, you know, Greece to Afghanistan. Mm -hmm. And Persia was almost the final nail in the coffin for, um, you know, the Egyptian uh home rule of the egyptians so um that's a great place to start that's around um 600 uh bc or earlier than that and um they also kind of defined the model of empire that we would have in europe and southwest asia and north africa uh for quite a long time i mean they uh, were um, content to let people uh, govern themselves as long as they paid taxes to the central authority. And, um, you know, the uh, administration was done in the language of Aramaic, which was super influential to the point where that was the language that Jesus was speaking, you know, a thousand years later uh, in his day-to-day -day life. Are you saying they're the protagonists of 300? Absolutely, absolutely. Yeah. I mean, um, so part of their model was that they had many, many democracies in um, Anatolia uh, who were part of the Persian Empire. You know, these were people who ruled their city-states democratically or whatever they would consider that. I mean, democratically for male slave 
property owners, much, what have you. Yeah, much As softer than like the Assyrians, you know. Yeah, so they they were um, a lot more tolerant than the empires that came before them, and that's what kind of allowed them to um, conquer more territory or, or rule or administrate more territory uh, rather than trying to force everyone to learn their language and things like that. Right, yeah, they were obviously like a much more, uh, almost like a, the cons were the sim a similar way. Where Well, we yeah, we'll, we'll get to them, but... um. Right. So yeah, in the large sweeps of history, you you in the region you have the Persians, and then you have, uh, you know, Alexander the Great, who comes and does essentially the same thing. I mean, the the center of gravity in the Persian Empire is so uh, massive that people who conquer them become Persian, and we see that to a lesser extent in, in Egypt too. Um, you know, where, where the culture is just so entrenched that, and, and it works, you know, this works for this environment. This is a rule, uh, a, a method of administration that's suitable for that environment. So conquerors who try something different uh, lose out, you know, and ones who kind of assimilate into that culture, um, you know, do have a better job. In this period, Armenia um, had adapted to the Persian religion, Zoroastrianism, which was, um, I consider that the first monotheistic religion. People try to argue that, oh, it's dualistic, so it's, you know, it's, I mean, this isn't a pagan religion how you would think of it because there's not a pantheon, right? There's the good God and the bad God to massively oversimplify it. Yeah, I, to me, it seems like Gnostic almost. Would that be? Well, I, I would say that Gnostics were influenced by them. Okay. Because I get mean, it. So, uh, influential that like um so the magi that's where we get the word magic right mm -hmm. so um you know it was always uh it was always seen as kind of this oriental mystique of this place of higher learning and they were really good at um the zodiac and astrology and you know if you want to claim that you had a great mystery cult you would claim that you learned it in persia and you know people would be in, in Greece, I'm talking about, would be really impressed by that. Um, so uh, we can eventually get to the Romans, right? And the Romans are kind of strange because they're um, a European power that has sense and a European seed power at that, that then had muscled into the territory of these Asian land empires. So um, that period, even though we're much more familiar with it, is kind of um, an anomaly for the region. You know, most of the history of this region has been ruled by land empires in Asia. Right. You know, so it's, um, I, I really don't think that the Roman Empire's rule in the area was uh, necessarily sustainable. Uh -huh. um, in that period, though, that's when we do get Christianity. So um, I understand that you have some questions about the Armenian church. Well, uh, before we get to that, why don't we talk about, can I ask a quick sure. question as far as it relates to Persia? I mean, at the time of the Persian empire and the Armenians living under it, what territory were they occupying as far as across like Anatolia and stuff? Where were they? Because obviously now they're confined to this small space of the world with the majority in diaspora. So what was like the historical 
and obviously it's hard to tell with a, a nomadic type people in the beginning, but what were like the historical range of lands that they typically occupied prior to say the Romans coming in? So I would say um, almost the entirety of the Caucasus and um, from from sea to sea, what is that? That's the, uh, that's the Black Sea and the, is it the Adriatic Sea yeah. on the other side? Um, so that's what's considered greater Armenia. Um, <laughs> I believe that's around 300 BC um, at its greater extent. Um, but the, the real homeland is the Caucasus. And it was a sort of environment where they, these were mountain kings, right? Right. Uh, uh, an individual, you know, a powerful family might rule, you know, a, a mountain and the surrounding hills maybe the mountain next door, but it was nowhere near a nation state. Um, these things, these mountains were too isolated for anything like that. And um, I mean, the model of empire is very hands-off as long as you pay your taxes once a year. And the taxes um, under the Persian empire were more like barter, you know, goods and services, things like that. Um, you're good. You know, let these mountain kings fight it out all day. Um, it was a very martial culture for that region. Um, you know, these were people who were prized as soldiers in all these different empires because they had these kind of family feuds, blood feuds going on in these mountains um, in that period. Much later in the Byzantine Empire, um, you know, the Armenians start to take on a, a, a different role. It's kind of sped up in the Ottoman Empire and become more of a uh, kind of like a, a merchant class, kind of, you know, more of a cosmopolitan um, people, but uh, that's much, much later. No, For this period, it's a backwoods, honestly. What role did they play in the Ottoman Empire? Because you, obviously, you know, like Caucasian true, you know, Caucasian ethnicities, like the Tatars and stuff like that worked as basically like mercenaries for the Ottomans and stuff like that. So what was the Armenians role during like the Ottoman Empire proper? So I, I consider the Ottoman into, Empire, like, time. Um, I consider them almost a, uh, a, a hybrid of, of the Persian, you know, tradition and the Roman tradition and the Turkish tradition. I mean, um, they uh, had were up until the modern era were content to let the the Byzantine populations that were still around um, stay on the coast of Anatolia. Those places were still heavily Greek speaking. Um, and you know it was essentially pay your tax and pay your uh, jizyat, I believe is uh, might be how it's uh, pay your tax and, and pay your uh, or jizyat, which is the tax that the, the non-Muslims would, would pay uh, to um, for essentially the right to govern their own communities under their own laws. And, um, and so, and then they were later part of, you said, the Eastern Roman Empire then. Yeah, so. Okay. Um, yeah, you can go into that if you're ready. <laughs> yeah, I mean, what I'd like to go into would be um, the church is called the Apostolic Church because it was founded by the, the apostles, um, Thaddeus and Bartholomew. 
Um, so within the lifetime of Jesus, they had gone and established churches in Armenia. And they, um, those churches then would, um, by 400 AD, have converted uh, the nation of Armenia, the king, uh, prior to the conversion of the Roman Empire. So uh, that's where Armenians get the claim of the first uh, Christian nation. And um, that's how they've maintained their uh, autonomy as a church along with other earlier, earlier churches such as the um, Ethiopian church uh, and uh, uh, maintained independence from the Catholics and the Orthodox uh, faiths. Okay, yeah, that's where I get a little confused because I'm not, you know. Sure, it's very as, confusing, yeah. As a Catholic, it's hard for me to imagine that there were- Yeah, was, I mean, these yeah. are geopolitical in um yeah. kind of decisions but the theology that they justify these with is really hair splitting i mean it's things like um okay we we agree that jesus has two natures both human and divine or is it one nature that is both human and divine i mean that's the fight that they're fighting over i mean these are geopolitical arguments um you know at the end of the day uh, but these people still, um, you know, they still had a, a desire to follow the one true faith. You know, that was a very strong motivating factor for them. Uh, that was tied on, up into their, you know, geopolitics as we would understand it in the modern area. So that... Yeah, I can. I understand. And so, is that what makes you consider uh, Armenia more of an Eastern country than, say, a Western one? Despite any like modern leanings they've tried to make towards our country and NATO members and stuff like that. Yes, exactly. I mean, uh, it was always a buffer state um, between um, Eastern and Western powers. Sometimes it would be under control of one, sometimes as the other. Um, but it was never fully in the Western camp. I, we get the impression mainly due to the diaspora, um, which uh, did uh, heavily lobby and still does Western powers for intervention in the region. But uh, that lobbying effort, as we saw by from, unfortunately from, um, you know, the modern conflict isn't, uh, isn't going to change uh, you know, Western imperialist plans, you know, when, when they conflict with um, Armenian interest. I mean, it's really not that influential. Um, you know, it was really strange to see people on Twitter um, framing this as an East versus West thing, as a Crusader thing, uh, when that's really not the case. I mean, Crusaders were at uh, warred against um, Byzantium and um, Armenians as often as they warred against the Muslims. And then you had Muslims, um, the Fatimids who were on the Crusaders side. So um, a lot of this is flattening it out. Um, you know, something that we can talk about uh, that I believe is people flattening history is blaming this all on Stalin. Um, Stalin wasn't even in power at the time when, uh, you know, these decisions were made. So people are just uh, kind of latching onto that name and what they think history was like rather than uh, looking into it. Well, I mean, the whole 
post World War One division would have all been Western powers, wouldn't it? You know, Stalin was kind of coloring in the lines that were already there. Exactly. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, the British um, had uh, had uh, spheres of influence in the region, and this is something that essentially was what Ataturk was reacting against. Um, they were going to carve up um, Turkey like they carved up um, Arabia. You know, the Sykes-Picot agreement right. has caused problems to the modern day. And um, they wouldn't have done any better of a job, I'm sure, if they had done that in Turkey, even though Armenia may have been better off, but I'm sure other regions would have gotten um, really messed up, uh, you know, especially the Kurds who didn't have that diaspora lobbying for them in the West. Yeah. And uh, they didn't get anything. <laughs> um, so uh, they did, though, um, go overboard. I mean, <laughs> uh, they, uh, the, the, the Turkish War of Independence was looking to, to grab as much territory as it could. And um, I mean, just keep in mind that this is uh, after the genocide, the genocide was under the Ottoman Empire, um, even though the young Turks were still influential in the Ottoman Empire and decisions being made. This is kind of uh, uh, more the Turkish War of Independence is more of a, a land grab than a, a war of extermination, but it is still hitting hard on these refugee populations um, from just a few years ago. I've gone through. Um, utter hell. Uh, and the, the genocide was framed as uh, deportation, but uh, I mean, that's yeah. everyone frames, frames these things like that. The excuse uh, is always there's no paper like the final solution document. You know, there, there, there is a, a, there is, um, a paper. I'm sure. Um, I'm sure there's multiple, but yeah. that is the Western excuse: is there is yeah. no, like smoking gun, as they'd consider it, which is like the final solution document. Yeah, if if they had, if only they had enough food, and right. railroad cars, <laughs> you know, they wouldn't have had to march through the desert with no food and water. You know, we just they just forgot about that part. You know, it's just incompetence. It's I it's mean, crazy. They probably bought. Well, no, it was too early, but they probably would have bought the boxcars off Nazi Germany if time had worked out right. But yeah, there's there's no, the Western argument is, is like, oh, well, we don't have any explicit proof that it was nothing more than the relocation. And while we're talking about the transitionary phase, you know, even the, though the genocide did primarily occur under the Ottoman Empire and the Young Turks still under the Ottomans, uh, when Ataturk came around, I mean, Ataturk was still active during these years, and obviously Ataturk came to power, and the CHP has rarely let go of Turkey since. Um, what, it, from what I understand, Ataturk had some knowledge of the genocide, and what what extent was that, that to your knowledge? Um, frankly, I'm not um, an Ataturk expert. Um, I don't blame you. But... but uh, uh, one, one thing that did kind of come up to me when I was doing my research on this this period was, um, you know, the, 
there was a very real reason for there to be this um, kind of sense between the, the newly formed USSR and the newly formed country of Turkey uh, that they're both enemy of my enemy is my friend at this period. Uh, it was almost like um, a non-aggression pact and uh, you know the, the USSR had sent gold and, and arms to Turkey at this point to um, prevent this kind of nightmare scenario from their point of view of these Western, you know, pseudo colonies being set up right on their border. Um, so this is the period where um, Turkey pushes back what was the Russian Imperial Front back to the modern confines, the modern, you know, lines of the modern nation of Armenia. And, uh, but then Turkey um, gets what they want, right? And then they come to peace with the West. And at this point then is when the Russian arm, uh, army moves into the Caucasus, um, you know, to counter kind of British influence um, coming up from Persia. See, that's interesting. I didn't quite understand that. So is that what drove, so you're saying the recreation of Armenia basically was done through the Soviets after Turkey had decided to go West? Because obviously we know- Well, uh, yeah, the, um, the, there's a lot of Armenian liberals who, um, you know, anti-Soviets, right? right. Uh, who uh, blame the USSR for snatching away Armenians independence. Armenia was only an independent country for two years before it became one of the founding members of the USSR. Um, my argument would be that USSR saved them. Without the USSR, without the Red Army in the region, they would have been conquered by Turkey at that very point in time. That was kind of my question. It seems like if, the, if they hadn't have turned, if Turkey hadn't have turned west and the USSR hadn't have had a reason to suddenly be aggressive and suspicious, wouldn't what is Armenia now just be a part of Turkey? Wouldn't it be an extension of Turkey, possibly? You know, I would believe so. Yeah, one hundred percent. But yeah, the British, the British probably, you know, had sites on the entire Caucasus, which you know, even the parts that we would consider Russia are still highly volatile to this day. Uh, Chechnya and places like that um, have you know have other other thing you know their own histories going on. And some of the same scenarios driving from the fact that these mountains are inherently ungovernable or less governable than, um, you know, modern nation states would like. Uh, yeah, absolutely. I think a lot of people learned that this year. And it is really, um, it is really eye-opening to look at a topographic map. They're a lot better these days, like the CGI ones, um, you know, kind of are easier for me to process than the, the old maps with the shaded lines. And those are really amazing because you can see the nation states uh, without any lines, you know? Just bordered. There's a reason, you know, they, they, there's a, it's like history they say is 90% uh, geography, 10% common sense. That common sense is just what do these great men, Alexander the Great, Napoleon, whatever, you know, what do the economic processes do with the geography that's uh, 
you know, they've inherited. Right. And then obviously, you know, there's whole different factors of the like balkanization processes across the world and things like that, that artificially change maps to try and weaken, you know, regional alliances and things like that. But at the same time with Armenia, um, you know, when you look, especially like when you look at Artsakh, it seems like it's almost similar to a Kurdish situation where these people have lived in the mountains so long, or even like Afghanistan, man, where you have these yeah. people who've lived there their whole life in these mountains and, you know, they're used to it. I think that's why you saw so much trouble when the Azeris tried to move into Artsakh initially, because they weren't prepared for that kind of yeah. combat. Yeah, so they had... Um... If anything, I would blame the, the Imperial Russia on um, sort of the situation because this is the environment where um, a lot of the Azeris, uh, they, they, okay, they administered places city by city rather than um, really nationality or region or like a nation. So this area, um, Armenia and Azerbaijan were both mostly administrated by from Baku and Tiflis in Georgia. So you kind of get, um, you know, you, you have these imperialist powers playing their divide and conquer games in the region, um, sort of disrupting what was the settlement pattern um, going back forever where you have the mountain, you know, the mountain lifestyle in the mountains and you have the plains lifestyle in the plains, um, which was the environment that we had uh, when the Turks initially came in. I mean, they didn't settle in Armenia. They came through Armenia to get to the plains in Anatolia, which is where they wanted to be. They wanted to keep their plains lifestyle right you know they yeah. didn't want to adapt a brand new mountain lifestyle <clears throat> well the armenians and the kurds sure seem to have figured it out you know because they're still there no matter what turkey does they yeah. are still there so um i think that you know let's as we're on this period let's talk about the soviet union let's talk about the early soviets where was you know uh, the Caucasus were where the strongest and like most democratic Soviets appeared after the Bolshevik Revolution. Uh, obviously, Baku was one of them. But what was uh, was Armenia uh, sort of similar at the time? Yeah, I mean, Armenia had the Armenian Revolutionary Federation uh, under the Ottoman Empire as their kind of nationalist party. Um, you know, this is a left leaning party. They had you know, socialist in that party, Bolsheviks, Mensheviks in that party, it was a popular front. Um, you know, during the Russian Revolution and Civil War, those coalitions started to break up. And uh, a lot of the more nationalist members, um, you know, formed in opposition to the Yerevan Soviet, of course, formed by the, the, the Armenian Bolsheviks. And a lot of these people actually um, retreated to the area, areas around Artsakh. Uh, they called it the Republic of Mountainous Armenia and, uh, you know, try to hold out there uh, until uh, the Red Army came. That's one, one of the regions, one of the reasons people's 
you know, say may have been um, why the area did go to Azerbaijan, um, you know, as a sort of retaliation against that. Um, but Armenia got other disputed regions too, you know. You think ours? Uh, there were dozens of these regions. Um, you know, if you look at the map, there's a little bit of Azerbaijan to the uh, west of Armenia, and then the tail of Armenia, and then Azerbaijan to the east, and Artsakh's right there on the east. So if you look at this tail, that was a disputed region that Armenia got um, during this horse trading. And, you know, they were all, they all knew that they were entering a multinational confederation, right? You know, they knew that they were, at least in theory, supposed to be all new members of a, you know, socialist motherland. Uh, and essentially, that, that ideology was true to a more or less extent, in that a lot of the ethnic uh, tensions didn't re-arise until the fall of the USSR. Yeah, that's what I, that's what I noticed, too, is the fact that, that um, like I said, they, they were both early adopters, it seems like. And it seems like as like at the time they identified as, you know, fellow people of the Caucasus and there was much more unity among it. And but another thing we've talked about, too, is when they cut off uh, Nagorno-Karabakh, when Stalin did so, you think it, I mean, you mentioned some so Stalin, he was commissioner of nationalities. Right. So, um, yeah, that was that was his department, you know, the department that's making these decisions. But uh, I mean, he was still uh, answerable at that point to the rest of the the government, right? He was a cabinet minister. That wasn't his, he wasn't an autocrat yeah, at that point. So I don't, you know, I think that that was a consensus decision, um, you know, between these different parties because they knew that, um, you know, at the end of the day, it didn't matter as much as when these were independent nations whose land, who gets what land, because they were, you know, something more akin to states. And, with and, and these regions were, um, you know, under Azerbaijan, but also independent within Azerbaijan. They were independent oblast. So that's right. another layer of self-governing, you know, below the nation state level to kind of smooth over that compromise even more. That's what leads me to my question, I suppose, is you and I have spoken about how, um, you know, already in this interview, we've spoken about how Turkey was kind of on the fence as they were becoming a new republic. Yeah. And at the same time that was happening was when the Soviet Union was dividing up regions in the caucus. And there was, you know, there was moves to kind of appease Turkey, hoping that they would come over into the Eastern Bloc. And at the same time, you know, that obviously didn't work. And Nagorno-Karabakh was granted this special autonomy, right? So, yeah, you... I don't know if that was so much to appease Turkey as Azerbaijan. The appeasement to Turkey, I would say, would be the, the, the money and the, the guns. Yeah, that's true. <laughs> it just seems that I can't describe it. It just seems like there's also some involvement in hoping that the Soviets, you know, if we give yeah they definitely did not want to alienate turkey right if we you know don't go too soft on the armenians as we're trying to make deals with turkey as they're dividing things you know yeah 
And then, uh, but like we said, it was given the status of an autonomous oblast. So that, you know, we've talked, in, I've talked in other interviews about like what kind of autonomy that actually gave them and how they were separate from the, you know, the actual state of Azerbaijan. But why, you know, none of that was considered after uh, 1991. Nothing about special autonomous zones, which the Soviets had multiple of, you know, and there was multiple yeah. zones that they considered like key security assets like uh, Crimea, you know, and that was kind of just left out of the negotiations, even though the Soviet borders were fully used, any like special autonomous zone was like failed to be accounted for in the new maps, you know, and that yeah, kind of led I, to why Artsakh is still in this fucked up place, this messed up place. But um, yeah, it led to why Artsakh is still in this messed up place, you know. So, I'm not a huge expert on, um, you know, the, 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 the fall of the USSR. Um, that's gonna, probably gonna be the next thing that, um, you know, I, I, I try to research, but I get the impression that they didn't give a shit. Yeah. You know, it was very much uh, uh, it, it, it was a, a, the laziest revolution, um, so to speak, you can imagine is, is my impression. Of course, they're gonna use the lines that are already drawn on the map and not, not rethink it. You know, they just want to yeah. cash out as soon as they can. Plus, honestly, keeping Nagorno-Karabakh and Azerbaijan feeds into the strategy that they've been using ever since, which is just pit all these tiny nations against each other so they can never do anything. <laughs> you know, so that's become kind of standard fare at this point. They they take, you know, look what they did to Yugoslavia. You know? Oh, yeah. And it was very similar, I think, when they redrew the maps following the Soviet Union. They're like, yeah, these countries only made sense in, in a multinational coalition. But if you actually just cut them up like into these small pieces that they technically are you can pit them all against each other and that's why you can see you know a pro-russian government in armenia and the azeris backed by like the turks and the israel and the west you know you see that like oh the all of these small nations constantly kept in conflict the u.s does not have to intervene because we don't yeah you know it's none of our problem we don't go intervene in the balkans anymore we don't care about that you know, after we messed it up, that was enough, you know, and I think the same kind of thinking applied to post-Soviet, like the post-Soviet caucus region. It was just, well, they'll never be able to unify. And if they do, we'll always have these subversive forces in their countries that will manage to move things around, you know, that there's always influence peddling, especially in countries like that. You always see the fights between Russia and like Western NGOs and things, you know, so I think that fight is still going, but it was definitely designed during the dissolution of the Soviet Union. So, I mean, I guess we can probably get close. We're close to the end here. What are your, I, the war in Artsakh is what technically wrapped up, you know, with some pretty unfortunate losses. Um, what do you think happens next? I mean, if you just want to give it your best guess. What I've been seeing in the Armenian community is a newer, um, is almost a revival of a consideration of modern day Armenia. We went through a big, um, big uh, period of time, you know, with the, the centenary of the genocide 
uh, you know, looking back. You know, so it's really exciting to see the diaspora looking forward. I mean, it's completely, un it's incredibly unfortunate that this is what it, it took uh, for these people to remember their roots, you know, and go from lobbying for a record genocide, you know, for, for they want Congress to recognize the genocide, um, to go from that to lobbying to uh, for for aid for for the people who are still alive in Armenia, um, so that's really good to see, um, and I I really um, you know I can't wait for the day where you can go to a restaurant, um, you know, run by Armenians that serves Armenian food that doesn't have Mediterranean in the name. Yeah. Yeah, well, I, I agree. You make a good point because like you said, everything prior to this has been about the genocide and the genocide has been held over Armenians' heads like this political like keep away game, you know, recognition in Israel. Or the yeah, I mean, it is, it, is, um, it is one of the reasons why the diaspora is so strong. And, um, you know, this is, if, you know, if, if you're, ancestors have gone through that then it is a, a good thing to you know remember that forever never forget for sure and use that as a way to keep the community together if you need to rather than assimilate like so many other immigrants when they get to america um but there's got to be the other side of that coin which is um you know considering what the conditions are in the country right now today yeah I, I think it's just a good point. I, I, I just want to emphasize that I think it's definitely a good point that things have changed because especially over the last few years, as, as tension has gotten high with Turkey and Western countries, they've started playing with this idea of like, oh, well, we, we might recognize the genocide. We might not, you know, they bring it up to a vote every once in a while when they're about to sanction Turkey. So looking ahead, I, I agree, is definitely something positive that came out of this. And I hope that, you know, there's more of it. Yeah. And, um, you know, who knows what happens after Erdogan. But I do, I do think that Turkey has within itself the potential, um, you know, to be something completely different and better than what it is today. I and I, I hope that I see that in my lifetime. Yeah, I, this hope is... that I can go back to, you know, the villages in Western Turkey and see Armenian names. This is a topic that will take a whole nother interview. But yeah, I think the best hope is that the CHP has learned some lessons after being out of power um, that they don't come back in. Because as of right now, they kind of run on the platform like the Democrats did here, where they're like, well, we're not Erdogan, you know. So I hope if the CHP, because they're, face it, they're the only ones who are in a place to actually come back into power. So I hope that if they come back, they've learned something, you know, this doesn't need to be the return of like the Bourbons in France or anything like that, you know, learn something while you're out there in the woods. And that would be my advice for a party that doesn't care what I think. But yeah, I think it'll definitely depend. You know, I, Erdogan is on the way out with all of his Western friends. He's prepped for new sanctions this week. Um, the economy's in a free fall. 
unless the man genuinely cheats and becomes like an autocrat, I don't see how he stays in power uh, more than a few more years. Um, but that's for another day and down the road. But yeah, thank you for talking to me. And I want to, oh, yeah. to uh, go ahead and go to geopolitics alert where you've written a couple of articles um, with maps detailing, you know, the migration of the Armenian people over centuries. And I would like people to look into those. And I want to say they're, they've been a cool resource for me, man, because I didn't know just how widespread it was, you know, the population was. And now seeing them tucked into this tiny corner with you know, the majority of them everywhere else is very interesting to see the history of that. So I encourage anybody watching this to definitely go check that out. And thank you again, man. Oh yeah, thanks for the opportunity. And I'm excited to, um, you know, work on the final installment of that piece dealing with, um, you know, the modern era. I'm looking forward to it. And I think you'll be back for another interview at some point. Maybe we'll have to do one just on the maps. All right, for sure. All right, nice talking to you, man. And I'll see you later. All right, thanks. Oh, hey.